Hey guys, welcome to our first Legal Loops podcast of 2021. I'm your host, Tabang Royds, aka Tilly Bang. You know what it do, you know what it does. And alongside me today, as per the usual, I have the lovely Juliet Savvy. Hi. And two new faces, the newest members of our Legal Loops team, Kate from second year and Akna from first year. Hi, everyone. Hi, guys. A friendly reminder that all our podcasts are recorded over Zoom, and we hope that you guys are keeping healthy, safe, and sanitized during this time. Our podcast today is in line with LGBTQI plus History Month, and our guest is Mr. James Greenwood-Reeves, a current PhD student and teaching assistant at the University of Leeds Law School. Welcome, James. Uh, thanks for having me. It's lovely to get to speak to you guys. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, just explain your journey so far, um, some of your experience at university, your career, your PhD thesis, what is it about, and why the interest in it as well? I'll try to keep my response to less than an hour. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> no worries. I did, I did my law degree in 2010, which makes me preposterously old compared to a number of you guys. And I, I did my undergrad at Cambridge. I was very lucky to get in, having come from a state school and a relatively sort of poor family, single parent, mother, household, lots of unemployment and horrid bills. And, but one thing she did have was a, a law degree that she did part time partly funded by a charity and the the joy of that was that whilst we had dinner and what have you we'd be talking about things like civil liability and mens rea and the the rule of it. all the fun um, topics yeah exactly having <laughs> arguments um, about Dudley and Stevens whilst tucking into a roast dinner which is a bit yeah. when you think about it <laughs> but then I was inspired to myself do a law degree from there lucked out got into Cambridge somehow, eschewed all of the commercial subjects, fearing that I'd lose my socialist credentials. <laughs> uh, so I did lots of human rights stuff and jurisprudential stuff. Thereafter, I went into practice, not as a solicitor or barrister, but as a legal executive, uh, which is an, a much overlooked sort of cousin like, within mm. the profession. It's sometimes <laughs> looked down upon, but it meant that I could just focus and, uh, on one or two areas of law. It also meant that I could stay roughly at home at that time when I was fostering a relationship with my would-be, soon-to-be husband <laughs> and with my, with my mother, who was um, somewhat unwell at the time, trying to divide up my purse. I didn't want to commit to a full career in like a city law firm or, or anything like that. And I, I gave up uh, my application to join the bar because I, I just simply didn't think I could afford it, for one thing. I couldn't move to London. I couldn't, I couldn't risk financially any of that. So I became a legal executive focusing on wills and probate. So somebody who had hated equity and trusts and land law all the way <laughs> through their undergrad, I was dealing with dead people's estates. Um, but I, I, it gives you, gives you a lot of life lessons, as it were, a lot of death lessons as well. And it also gave me the, a little bit of time and perspective to think about what I really wanted to do. Then Dr. Rosie Fox, some of you may know, it's a yeah. friend of my husband's. They went to school Crazy. together. Yeah. And... I met Rosie and she said, oh, you like jurisprudential stuff. You love left-leaning law philosophy <laughs> nonsense. And she would just sort of whisper in my ear whenever we met, like, come to Leeds. Um, <laughs> and the, the whole come to Leeds sort of subliminal, you know, quite liminal messaging, messaging um, <laughs> did, did get through in the end. I did my master's in security and justice under Dr. Conroe Riley, who's now one of my PhD supervisors. Did really, really well in that. I'm now doing my PhD in violent protest and justifications for violent protest in liberal democracies with co-supervisor Jen Hendry, uh, Dr. Jen Hendry, 
and yeah it's 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 involved an awful lot of teaching now and a lot of engagement with students and some of you folk um and yeah uh, sorry a bit of i said i'd be less than an hour <laughs> <laughs> no it's perfectly fine just just under an hour just under. <laughs> so i just want to ask about what was your own student experience actually like i mean you mentioned you graduated over seven years ago can you see any difference to what lgbt students are currently experiencing compared to what you personally experienced yeah i feel like it wasn't so long ago that there was a very distinct different culture. I feel like people were still, there was LGBTQ societies, there was still a, a strong presence of, of queer folk within the university that I went to and, um, and what have you. I guess it's even more prominent and even more normalized now, which is, which is a good thing as far as I'm concerned. I think the only, the only thing that I'd probably highlight is that there is a greater, there's a greater staff awareness of LGBT issues now. There's, a, there's greater links between staff and researchers uh, for support for, for LGBT staff. And that's more prominent now than it used to be, or certainly that when it was back when I was doing my undergrad. But yeah, um, just, as, just as gay and flamboyant there as, <laughs> as anything today. Is there any particular reason why there is that awareness around the staff now or? I think it's a gradual march of progress, I think. More, more sort of normalization of these sort of attitudes, less of a sense of uh, it being a, a, a value or a characteristic that requires particular mention, focus, or ostracization at the furthest end of that spectrum. I think that possibly it's also that I'm more aware of it as a staff member than I ever would have been as a student. I wouldn't have known about that stuff. <laughs> stuff um, LGBT links when I was a student but I also think that staff talk about being LGBT more with their students I feel like that's much more of a thing I feel mm. like that is no longer seen as something which is forbidden or is taboo it, yeah exactly which of course you know going back far enough was very literally the case it would have been unlawful to kind of mention and talk about a number of these things for students in schools for example mm. and I feel like a similar culture of well that's inappropriate for the workplace sort of pervades in universities but I don't think that's quite the case anymore. So like now we're like talking about the LGBT community and everything have like have you always actively associated yourself with the community? I think it's interesting to ask what does it mean to be a member of the LGBT community to you? Well I mean so um, outside of outside of my current research project with Dr Rosie Fox which I'll get into in a second like my husband is a drag queen. Oh, I, wow. Yes the witch Blair you can follow on. <laughs> I'm going to have a look. Um, That's so you, cool. You should. Uh, something <laughs> I should also say, like uh, explicit content, parental guidance advice, etc. <laughs> uh, but yeah, The Witch Blair. Phenomenal. I myself, as, I'm, I'm slightly less flamboyant than and within the gay scene as, as that. But it's quite nice to be like the Jackie O of drag. He won a... He won a competition a few years back, and so, and, and it's quite nice every now and then to go to a gay bar and people go, "Oh, look, you're his! Oh, you're his husband! I've heard of you." Bridging the sort of gay world and the academic world, I, in as much as they are different worlds, I think that's I think that the, the bridging has very much happened, and particularly you go on Twitter, the Venn mm. diagram of gay Twitter and academic Twitter is increasingly <laughs> those moons are colliding, which is which is a beautiful thing to witness. Have I always been so involved? I think possibly when I was an undergrad I was slightly more reticent about it not mm. not necessarily I was never closeted or anything. Mm. and I've never 
I've never come out because I've never had to, because <laughs> it's as clear as day for everyone around me. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's certainly something which I don't have any hesitation in sharing and talking to people about now. Whereas going back 10 years, I think I would have been, you know, 18 and somewhat worried about what people's perceptions of me might have been. I think that's a great thing because obviously nowadays people don't have to feel that way but obviously there are still some challenges in the community and I think what we want to talk about is what challenges have you faced and how have you overcome them? Uh, yeah I mean so it's, it's interesting because that question is focused on the idea that and, and not, not implausibly it's focused on the idea that being LGBTQ is a particular barrier mm-hmm. and of course I am a a, a, a white cis man yeah and actually when it comes to when it comes to privileges I have got much going for me like so despite mm. despite coming from a very poor family a uh, single parent household as I say and a number of those other sort of structural barriers which are not to be sniffed at they're you know very significant barriers to social mobility um I always freakishly had this voice I have always spoken like this Mm. Um, despite none of my family being quite so well spoken <laughs> apart from apart from my twin brother and it opens doors right it has definitely provided me with the ability to blend into Cambridge and I remember mm. I won't say who because I don't want to be sued but there was a there was a particular Don just a fellow at Cambridge who asked after a conversation with me over dinner was like, oh so which of the schools did you go to then and implying of course that I would have gone to a private school and it would have been preposterous mm. that I hadn't gone to a, a public school. So yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna bracket the LGBTQ experience forward slash barriers by saying I've got many other privileges notwithstanding. I don't think I've ever mm. been directly discriminated against in a workplace environment or in an educational basis. Uh, although I will say that I've, mm. it has been a it has been something which has been raised and used in a in a way that produces certain slights. That definitely has mm. happened. I think the worst was a, a different fellow uh, when I told them that I was going to apply for the bar. Said, "Oh well, you know, you're thankfully you're you're gay and you're poor. So the only thing you need to do next, I guess, is and I won't repeat the rest of it. But he mm. insinuated that there were other boxes I could tick if mm. I wanted to get additional funding." Which in a, in a way he said in, he said in really good jest. I don't think he, he he thought he thought he was being hilarious with that, and he thought it was I was being part of the in joke there. Other than that, other than that, there's occasional not being able to hold my hands with my husband in public. There's the occasional fear of you know public displays of affection on the bus and what have you. And in terms of the overall structure of my life and the ability to direct myself to where I want to go and places I want to be and the jobs that I want. The main thing stopping me, frankly, is my own laziness. So I'm, I'm quite fortunate. Just moving on to the next question. What do you hope that the legal industry will look like in the future? You've spoken about how in the university structure, there's a growing openness and awareness from the staff. And so what do you see for the legal industry in the future? And is there any particular change you want to see? Uh, I'll start off with, I mean, again, as, as we always have to do when we're doing these sorts of discussions, to separate the is and the ought, right? The, yeah. <laughs> the, the empirical and the normative. So in terms, yeah. of, in terms of the is and what is happening and what I predict reasonably is good, I think we're going to see more of the same sort of general trend of social liberalisation. I think And openness and... Exactly. And, you know, more obvious support for sort of LGBT history events awareness support for lgbt colleagues that is and that's good 
and I'm looking forward to seeing more of that. And that will be across across the professions, across academia. And yeah, as I say, we're seeing that already. That's been going for, for, for years now and is a positive thing. I think what I would like to see, and I think what's what's necessary, of course, is more to be done to deal with sort of an understanding of the intersectional harms that arise from multiple different demographic difficulties that people may have. So, for example, being, as I say, white and cis and male and LGBT, I blend in perfectly well, apart from my ridiculous, very poorly blonded hair. <laughs> but but I, I pass effectively as being belonging to in, the institution, right? Capital I institution. I can yeah. always blend into an institution because I, I speak well and I look like this. Mm. Conversely, there are many other LGBT people who ha have that as an additional barrier on top of, for example, being, being a woman or being a, a person of colour, who then uh, have got multiple different barriers to face there in terms of relatability for those who are hiring, the total lack of diversity in the uh, the top circles of law firms, the, the, the actual uh, partnerships of law firms mm. and within chambers. And I feel that like if we want to do something about that, I think we need to see real structural overhauls. We need to be able to mm. actually sort of say, okay, well, how do we get people who are from poorer backgrounds and people who are from uh, more diverse backgrounds uh, into the decision-making processes of those institutions so that they can decide who's being hired. They can decide who's being promoted and given partnerships. Um, because even with years of anti-discrimination legislation uh, for women, for non-white people and for gay people, the, the rate of progress is, is still tremendously slow. And part of that is because the people who make those decisions continue consciously or otherwise, to choose people who look like them for promotion. Mm. And you highlighted there the, the concept of intersectionality as well. I mean, we, we often focus on singular type of lenses for these type of things. You focus on this person being black, you focus on the person being white, and that's the only discrimination they actually go through. But then what happens for the black, Muslim, gay, female? Do you know what I mean? It's not like one day they'll walk in and be like, okay, today I'm choosing to be discriminated against on race. <laughs> cool. It's yeah. like it happens at the same time all the time. Um, and often people ignore that it's actually happening all the time. Mm, yeah, very much so. I, I um, as I say, like I, in a grim way, I count my blessings when it comes to my privileges because I know that I would have had an even harder journey getting even where I have, and I'm not saying I've had a meteoric rise or anything like, I'm not, I'm not like the Chancellor of the Exchequer or anything, I'm <laughs> a PhD student at least, but I'm very proud of where I got to, and I know that I wouldn't have got there without a lot of help from a lot of family and friends and uh, teachers, um, for one thing, but I also know that I would have faced even worse barriers if I um, didn't present in a way that got the immediate and unconscious sympathy of other people which looking and sounding like I do I know that he says making himself sound odious <laughs> but, but I know that I do get sort of automatic free pass hmm. uh, for, for a lot of things. So according to um, Stonewall a study by Stonewall 80% of LGBT members who were looking for work said they were discriminated against because of their sexual orientation and or gender, gender identity when trying to find a job in the last year so we have the Equality Act 2010, um, which prohibits discrimination against individuals for being LGBT. But do you think there's space for future legislative reform which addresses this 18% and which you believe should be implemented? 
Yeah, I, so as I, as I said a moment ago, like with the anti-discrimination legislation against discrimination based on a number of different qualities, you know, yeah. in terms of the Qualities Act covers quite a lot of them, but there, were pre, there was previous legislation to do with discrimination mm. uh, for, for women and for non-white people as well. And it's clear that that has helped, but it's clear that it's also incomplete because it doesn't address yeah. these deeper structural issues, right? Yeah. When it comes to LGBT people, the, you know, and, and discrimination, there isn't a box that employer ticks that says they were gay, so I didn't hire them. They, you know, yeah. it's 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 more insidious. It's more than internalized that. Um, prejudice. Very much so. It's yeah. it's it's much more insidious. It's less patent, and it, it sometimes it comes down to the to the, to the hiring in the first place. It also goes through then mm -hmm. to things like promotion. Will the a very uh, out queer person who challenges gender on a regular basis by dressing in a way that perhaps challenges gender binaries and dress and therefore raises eyebrows amongst uh, colleagues and business partners are they likely to get a partnership and that is then difficult because again the top boardroom the board of people who then make those decisions about hiring firing and promoting continue to look and sound and act the same so if to want to go back to your question if non-discrimination is a is a, a key and important bottom but we need to also be thinking about the top. I think we need to be thinking about how we change the structures of organisations so that they must yeah. represent a broader view, uh, must represent people from, from different backgrounds. And, and then that will allow those people to be part of that decision-making process. Mm. Um, because at the moment, it's very possible, and it keeps happening, that certain people who look and act a certain way, particularly cis, heteronormative, white males, make decisions that perpetuate people who resemble those exact people being yeah. future decision makers. No, it's very true. And just moving on to the next question, is there anyone in particular that you've always looked up to as a role model or a person that you see yourself in? Yeah, just go for it. Oh, I, I, I've, I have too many. I have too many. I mean, <laughs> like, so, so, I mean, the, the, it's, it's always such a cliche to go, particularly in the context of speaking to a gay man, but like, <laughs> my mother is one of my role models. And yeah, but <laughs> she is, she is. Like the, uh, it's true. This yeah. uh, very, very proud socialist woman who did a law degree when she, because she was bored raising kids. Like, we were all like <laughs> around her ankles and she was there like thinking, I'm going out of my mind reading The Hungry Caterpillar to these people. I need an argument. And so that- I need to learn about men's rare, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I, I need to raise these children so I can argue with them over dinner. <laughs> and, and she did it. So yeah, fair play to her. And then there were so many academics I met along the way that I, I owe a great deal of uh, gratitude to, you know, from, from Cambridge and beyond. The late Judge Stuart Bridge, who was a, my first criminal law supervisor and also gave me a job, uh, well, a, a placement marshalling him at the Crown Court is an example. May he rest in peace. But yeah, I think my I think the people I really look up to are alive though. <laughs> so so they're, they're people like Dr. Rosie Fox, with whom I'm currently yeah. working on a project. Um, been a great inspiration to me and has 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 been an endlessly positive supporter. She's a um, very lovely person. She's, she's one of honestly amazing. She's one of the purest and most wonderful people I've ever yeah. met. She cannot do enough to help. Uh, it's it's almost suspicious how much she is <laughs> how much she, she tries to be positive i always think is there what's her end game here <laughs> no, she's just lovely what's the plan what is that exactly like, 
But no, she's just a superlative, superlative human being. And I, I, again, mm. I would never have met her unless I'd met my husband. I'm not <laughs> going to concede anymore, not on record. Uh, <laughs> he'll use it against me. Yeah, and my supervisors, Dr. Jen Hendry, who was Rosie's PhD supervisor, <laughs> um, who, was, who encouraged me to apply and gave me lots of hope and advice with regard to doing a PhD in something like legal theory, which seems esoteric it seems like there's not a career at the end of it it seems a little bit sort of but that's not law that's philosophy and the answer is yeah. yes yes it is <laughs> that's the point it's a mixture of both <laughs> exactly and it's so much more fun this way i i get to spend i get to spend my waking days genuinely writing about whether or not it's justified to like set fire to government buildings <laughs> so much fun guys right <laughs> um and also professor uh, Conor o'reilly who as i say was my master's supervisor then becomes phd supervisor as well and um, he has been endlessly patient with me for years now in my in my studies and um is again one of the most lovable peaceful people his voice is so calming i could be in a real jitter about what i've written and he will immediately put me at ease just through his presence lovely 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 man so yeah that off the top of my head i'd say those people living people who have genuinely shown that they help me I'm, ne- I, I won't, I'm not going to say like Oscar Wilde or something abstract like that because he's dead and he's never done me any good. <laughs> I think it's better to think about the people who, who I, I, I actually like Actively, love and love yeah. and respect and have, you know, have some relationship with. No, that's really nice. Um, as we were talking about earlier, obviously, uh, attitudes have changed and everything and a massive part of the LGBT community is now allyship. Um, how have you experienced allyship in the past and do you think it's valuable for yourself and for the community as a whole? Yeah, so I, I, I know there's a there's a matter of discourse on allyship at the moment, which is quite critical and pejorative towards it, mm. uh, particularly where it comes to allies in name who actually as appropriate from, undermine, or otherwise interfere with mm. the progress of the community in some way. Mm. I think that's a, a valid concern in some respects, but I. In my own personal experience of allies is, well, I mean, if they're actually an ally, if that makes sense, then by definition, they've been, they've been a help to me. I mean, if I, if, I, if I think about it, all of my straight male friends have been tremendous allies. Mm. Um, and it's so weird to kind of turn to people and say, oh, no, I do have some straight friends and they're all right, really. Um, yeah. <laughs> like very much turning the tables and being like, they're not all bad. <laughs> Um, some of my best friends are straight, but yeah, like, like Rosie's husband, Stuart, for example, who's, who's this great big Viking of a man, mm. um, who is wonderfully, wonderfully straight, very, very aware of his straightness and has <laughs> always turns up to pride with glitter beard and is a constant and un- unfaltering support for us all. And then every, almost every male relative of mine has always been tremendously supportive of me. Again, this is another area which I could say, hand on heart, I've been tremendously fortunate because I've never had to experience the kind of conflict in the home with regards mm. to my sexuality that I know a lot of other people do. Mm. So I think if you find allyship, nurture it. If you, mm. if you seek allyship, you will find it. I think that there's a, a great understanding amongst the uh, cis sort of community the understanding that LGBT doesn't need to be othered it doesn't need to be considered a specialist issue it's part of being human and mm. it's 
you know, we, we're all here to support each other. And But this is the other thing I was going to, so on the we're all human, we need to support each other. Allyship then extends as well to the LGBT groups uh, supporting uh, Black Lives Matter groups mm. and unions. Yeah. I think that the, the it's all connected. I think in terms of actually seeing that there's a solidarity across people who can identify grievances and identify mm. that those grievances have an injustice at the bottom of them. That allyship should spread across these groups in a much stronger way than it currently does. Yeah, um, in no. a much more vocal way. Yeah, definitely. And for those who obviously don't understand what it means to be an ally and everything, how would you, how would you advise people to be good allies? Yeah, so also I think applies again conscious of being like a, a white person talking about allyship here. Yeah. So, but yeah, but like so allyship starts i think with listening and learning uh, mm. so being open-minded thinking okay there's more than one perspective here decentering is really important with allyship with regards to particularly race mm. and and with regards to womanhood and femininity and trans issues mm -hmm. and i think it's with the trans issues that the, the we need to do the most in terms of encouraging people to read to engage to decenter themselves to think okay who's actually vulnerable here what can we do to address these vulnerabilities? What is the, what is it that trans people actually want and ask for? What is it that they themselves are demanding? Uh, so that's the first step is to listen and listen and learn. And then it's to, I guess the next step is to offer us drinks. It's really <laughs> important. And I can't stress this enough. <laughs> Buy gay people alcohol. They will be very grateful. Perfect. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like it's most of it is, is just being a good human, you know, yeah. if you've got a, if you've got a friend who isn't quite sure about coming out or doesn't know whether or not they've got support, make it clear that they have support. Yeah. You know, make it unambiguous that this person is loved and then the rest should happen naturally. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> so how would you say that the University of Leeds particularly promotes LGBTQI plus people? Um, in the university and you spoke about always feeling supported by the people around you and how often does the university actually do that? Yeah so I've, uh, I, I was speaking of somebody who's yet to encounter a particular discrimination grievance so I, I can't yeah. speak on behalf of how it works in terms of when a grievance is, is raised yeah but my experience so far has been relatively smooth I've yet to encounter any hostility at all Part of that, certainly, is because the law school is great, guys. Like, I know it's, it's, it's very easy when you're being, like, snowed under the amount of work and horror of it all. But, like, the, the staff are, generally speaking, really lovely people. I've worked in a number of places and a number of institutions before. And the law school is probably up there as the best when it comes to how nice the personnel generally are. But in terms of other structural things, again, so there are LGBT groups amongst the staff. As a PhD student as well, I'm part of the you know, student union and that's got lots of support for LGBT people as well. And that's always worth bearing in mind. So one sign of things going well is that I've yet to, I've yet, yet to feel like I need to reach out to find other gay people through a, a gay person's forum, if that makes sense. It's, it's not like I, we need a secret password in order to find out where to find each other under the right <laughs> pillar of the particular, or like under behind a post box. Like every, we're present and we're, we're, we're friendly. We're there. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's quite clear if, if you want to find and identify with and meet other, other sort of LGBT people, mm. it, it's possible to find them either through, you know, just joining any other society, whether it's like a, 
a sports society or, or what have you. So yeah, I've, I've yet I've yet to feel like I need to particularly rely on those networks. I'm happy to say, yeah. and I think I think that's a testament to how how well the LGBTQ demographics are thriving happens. Mm. There may, of course, be more that needs to be said with regards to uh, issues for trans people and how they feel and how they are presented within the university, because I know that they are an overlooked demographic when it comes mm. to when it comes to accommodation. Uh, for their for their particular needs, but I don't feel like I'm qualified to particularly pass judgment on how well the university is doing on that front. Um, yeah. I don't think I've, I've noticed sufficiently. Now, are there any initiatives you personally support and actually want to speak about on the podcast? We can give you a little quick plug for anything <laughs> that you want to say. Uh, okay. Well, when it comes to things that I highly recommend for students, I'd say first and foremost, definitely get involved with the Law Society if you can not just for your career, <laughs> but for socialising and networking. And there's never been more need to connect with people. You can't just bump into people at the library or at, you know, Pyramid or whatever. You have to, you have to actively reach out electronically at the moment. So do what you can to find a forum that allows you to contact other students. In terms mm -hmm. of a, a specific plug, I know that there's a student decolonisation group at the at the, at the law school yeah um and again not not to say that it's unrelated to lgbt issues but again i think these things are all connected and i feel like yeah. it's a it's really worthwhile joining this particular group they the the sessions that they've had so far have been really enlightening in terms of having a group of students at the law school who want to talk about how to decenter whiteness from the curriculum the teaching uh, from our attitude to law and it's really, really exciting stuff. But other than that, I don't have anything other to plug apart from this. Uh, as I've been dropping hints throughout, Dr. Fox and I <laughs> are currently working on uh, the gayest thing that we're allowed to do, which, <laughs> which is a, uh, a joint article uh, for slash paper on jurisprudence and RuPaul's Drag Race and try to establish what the court system of RuPaul's Drag Race is how RuPaul's Drag Race incorporates, yeah, uh, and like how incredible legal aesthetics and how it looks at judges and how it mocks lawyers and how it thinks about legal culture, and also thinking about how it implements rules of fairness. Is the system within RuPaul's Drag Race fair and yeah. just? Uh, are the rules clear enough? Are there suitable appeals procedures? We argue that there aren't. Are they accessible as well? Are they accessible? Exactly. We, we, we don't know what the rules are. Exactly. Uh, is, is the only rule that RuPaul can make the rules up, in which case, <laughs> is it not a tyranny? <laughs> so we, we explore all of these various different things. Uh, we'll, the paper for that is probably going to be a while and a long time coming, but do feel free to ask us if you have any questions about it and we'll see whether or not we can um, fill you in. <laughs> No, that sounds lovely. So just moving on to the next question. Uh, sure. Do you have any general advice for any LGBTQI plus students and professionals? You mentioned getting involved, you mentioned doing all these things, but anything else, just general type of top tips for them? Yeah, I mean, so I think the first thing I probably want to say is for anybody who's LGBTQ or identifies that way and is reticent about presenting and being that way in day-to-day -day life. And there's, there's no hard or fast recommendation because your own personal vulnerabilities are the, the most important factor here like so coming yeah. out could could put you at risk if you if you belong in a 
in a household where that is going to be demonized in some way. The best advice I can give is live the best and most open life that you can. And mm. if you're not safe, the problem isn't your gayness, it's the lack of safety. Get out. Live your, there's, live your life is, is the, the best advice I can possibly give. I myself always have done, I'm very happy to say, but I've seen other LGBT people who have been much more closeted and invariably they tell me that it's, it's, it feels like years wasted rather than years lived. Mm. And so for their sake, I would say, pass the message on, like, yeah, live your best life as best you can. The only other thing I would say then is, yeah, be kind to everyone. Genuinely, you know, think about how you could help other groups as well. Reach out particularly to your um, trans brothers, sisters and siblings. Reach out to your black and brown brothers and sisters as well. Actually try to find solidarity in terms of joining, being part of the union, the student union, thinking about what it is that you can do to help other more vulnerable students. And uh, the only other bit of advice is take care of yourself. This is a horrible period of time to be alive. <laughs> it's been a wretched, wretched 12 months. So yeah, stay hydrated, stay warm, take it, you know, regular exercise if you can, um, and be kind to yourself. It's not everyone is always going to be kind to you, at the very least, be kind to yourself. Another bit of advice I would generally give to you guys, uh, students, is like, I, don't, I, I say this occasionally to some of my students, and again, if you've already heard this from me before, I'm sorry, but like, <laughs> treat this as a marathon, not a sprint. Like, you've got, mm. so, you've got so much work that you need to do for months and months, mm. and yeah. you, you have to just take care of yourself and stay rested and eat and sleep. And keep going as well. And keep going, yeah. <laughs> Try not to burn out. Yeah, that's a, that's a big stress. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's definitely that's a big thing. stress. <laughs> I have burnt out once before when I was really, really overworked once. And yeah. you, you know it when it's coming because your body does get physically more tired. Your body yeah. will tell you if you need to stop. And don't, mm. don't try to ignore it. Avoid allowing yourself to fall into all-nighters as well. Like, you know, plan ahead. <laughs> Try and try and treat it as a nine to five as best as you can. Um, yeah. Structure is super important for me when trying to get stuff done. Yeah, yeah. very true. That was beautiful advice. Thank you very much. <laughs> so just to the last question, if you could go back to yourself as an undergraduate spring chicken, James, what would one piece of advice be that you'd give yourself? Keep going, I think, is the best piece of advice. I don't, I don't have any particular regrets in life, I'm happy to say, because I've, I've tried to make decisions that make sense at the time. And if you make a decision which goes wrong, or if you try and it doesn't succeed, you've not failed. You've not done yourself a disservice. Just keep trying. Uh, things, even if things seem really bleak at the moment, keep going and keep being nice. This is I, I, one of the best bits of advice I can give. Be positive. People respond really, really well to positivity smile and ask people how they're doing be think about how other people are feeling and whether they're feeling okay and yeah things will fall into place thank you so much james hall coming onto the podcast and speaking very freely about your experiences about everything that you've been through i i thoroughly enjoyed the podcast i did have a good laugh <laughs> i'm not going to lie <laughs> both thank muted you. and unmuted <laughs> thank <laughs> you Thank you. Thank you ever so much for having me and letting me just witter on for the better part of an hour. Um, no worries. I hope that at least some of it proves useful and informative to other people. And, and also, if anybody, yeah, does, sure if anybody does have any further questions or wants to speak to me, 
uh, come and visit me in my academic support hours um, or, or, or feel free to follow me on Twitter. Yeah, uh, take care of yourselves. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. Big thank you to James Greenwood Reeves for joining us for this month's podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and we hope you were inspired by hearing about his experiences. We encourage you to check out his Twitter page and to also attend his support hours. Please also check out our page at Legal Loops Leads on Instagram for any upcoming podcasts and news.